Let's uh, turn, if you would, to uh, the book of Luke. We'll continue where we are in our study. Book of Luke, chapter 4. Just to help us find a, a place here, this is the beginning, or at least the beginning in this gospel of Jesus's public ministry. If you remember, we looked at his birth, actually the birth of John the Baptist, the prophecies regarding Jesus, and then uh, Jesus's birth. And last time we looked at John the Baptist, then we looked at uh, Jesus uh, being baptized, which is when the Spirit came upon him to empower him with the earthly ministry that he's been given. And last week we looked at uh, the temptation in the wilderness where the Spirit led him to the wilderness and Satan tested him. And we started getting a, a good look of who was the Lord Jesus as a man here on the earth. Well, this is now the beginning of his earthly ministry, at least as recorded in this gospel. Chapter 4, starting verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Tsarfat in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Then all who were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, and they, that they might throw him down over the cliff. 
Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. A very interesting story of the account of the Lord Jesus coming. Again, beginning his ministry, he will announce uh, to the people who has seen him grow up from a child to a man who it was that he was. And it's interesting, it ends the same way that the Gospels end, with them trying to kill him. Of course, at the end of the Gospel, he is killed, he is crucified. But you see here, even here at the very beginning, after Christ basically shared who he was and what it was he was to do, and some follow-up activity, they were ready to kill him. So uh, we have here, in a sense, a summary, if you will, of the Gospels. Christ coming to his own, and his own received him not. <clears throat> it's interesting here as we look at the way he presents himself he goes into the synagogue and it says that he went up and he stood up to read he was handed the book by somebody else and uh, he reads from the book a passage and then he returns the book to the person he read it from he goes and he sits down and then when people are obviously focused upon him Then he says, all these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. It's an interesting way in which he's announcing himself. Um, What strikes me throughout this passage about the Lord is an an amazing humility and gentleness as he's approaching his people. Think of it, he's the Lord of glory. When he comes the next time, he'll be riding on a white steed with a sword coming out of his mouth and everyone who is rebelling against him, will be slain at that time. This is the same person who entered the synagogue. And yet he enters in a very, very different manner. In fact, what the way he enters seems to be a very normal synagogue service. It's almost as if he's doing everything he can not to offend them. In the regular synagogue service, there will be an opportunity for someone to read from the scriptures. He is the one that is given that opportunity. He's not breaking any tradition by coming up to the front and reading from this book. Uh, He's choosing a passage. Some people suggest that that was the ordinary passage they were supposed to read that day. Uh, One of the amazing things about the Lord coming to Israel is these are a people prepared for the Lord, which means God has already given them a book all about the Messiah. So in effect, all Jesus has to do is come up, take the book that they all believed in was the Word of God, and just read the passage and say, this is fulfilled. This is about me. There were people prepared. God has already put in the book he gave to them the message about the Lord Jesus. So he, he, he doesn't really have to interrupt. He doesn't have to do very much in order to claim who he is out of the scriptures. Uh, the fact he then goes and sits down, I, you don't find it anywhere else in the scriptures. But again, Jesus realizes that these people are the most likely people to be offended by who he is. He says it. Uh, to them in verse 24. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He knows they're going to have a disposition against him. And he's doing everything he can to remove that uh, any reason that they would have to reject him. He's doing it as gently as possible. We'll see they still reject him, but it's not because of what he does or it's not because he's not trying to help them receive him. Uh, let's look a little bit at this passage that he read. Again, he took, he took it right out of the book of Isaiah, verses 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach 
the gospel to the poor. Let's take it step by step and think what the Lord is saying here to them. He is basically offering himself to them as a savior. He is offering himself as a savior. First, he is the good news to the poor. Today we hear a lot of people trying to say things to the poor as the uh, uh, Republicans are vying for nomination within their party. Everybody tries to come up with the magic word about what kind of tax I will use to try to help you get rich. And yet uh, none of them is really very effective in making us rich. Christ is offering to make us rich in a very different way. Listen to this. In uh, sorry, Second Corinthians eight nine. I'll read it. It says, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." The Lord Jesus was willing to become poor that you will become rich. I don't hear any candidates offering that. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they couldn't. You know, even the richest of them say he had a billion dollars. If you were to spread it among the 300 million dollars, uh, 300 million people in the United States, that would just be three bucks for each of us. You know, it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't help us that much. It's not so with the riches of God because they're infinite. So he can make all of us rich. Listen to some of these verses about that. I read before, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. He gives people who believe on his name the right to be children of God. Do you think there's some wealth that comes with that? If you don't listen to this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. We are joint heirs with Christ of the universe. God has infinite riches, enough to make every person rich. Uh, it's interesting, we're studying uh, Second Corinthians, and uh, there's a, a verse there by Paul where he describes himself, he says, as poor and yet making many rich. Paul lived, if you would, as a poor person, and yet by sharing the gospel with people, he was sharing with people the immeasurable riches of God. He was making every person who received the message infinitely rich. So if you want a welfare program or a wealth-creating program, share the gospel with people. The infinite riches of God are in your disposal to give to people. And the wonderful thing, it doesn't make you any poorer when you share the riches of God with them because there is no limit to the riches of God. So Christ has come to share his riches with people. What uh, The next, the next uh, verse we have is he has sent me to heal the broken-hearted. The broken-hearted. We all perhaps know people with broken hearts. Many of us have experienced broken hearts. I have experienced broken hearts. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, I, uh, I became attracted to a young lady, and uh, when she refused me, I felt like my heart was broken. And uh, it led me to a series of relationships with women 
really trying to soothe the pain that was in my heart. And yet none of those relationships helped. It was like there was a hole in my heart, but the hole was round, and I was trying to fit a square peg in it, and it didn't fit. And what finally healed the broken heart was coming into a relationship with Christ. And uh, he, he says as much, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So in this verse, there is the offering of the different philosophies of the world. The world will offer you lots of things. You have a broken heart, you feel you need something. Well, I have the thing for you. This will make you really happy. That's the job of a good salesman. And yet you'll be cheated if you're satisfied with anything other than Christ. Because he is alone the one you can be complete with. Why? Because he made you for that purpose. If you would, God made you with a heart, with a hole that fits a peg that only Christ has. Only he can complete you. Only he can heal the brokenhearted. The next verse or next uh, line, he says, he came to preach deliverance to the captives. To the captives. We don't often think of ourselves as captives. Neither did the Jews in Jesus' day. And so when he said to them, he said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendant, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed, he came to free us from the captivity of sin. Captivity to sin. People don't often acknowledge that. But that is the reality, is that we are slaves to sin. Some people say, well, it's not so bad to be slaves to sin. I like my sin. Uh, Mark Twain said, it's not easy to quit smoking. I've done it a hundred times. <laughs> but he thought it was okay to keep smoking. And people think it's okay to continue to sin. Jesus explains why not. A slave does not abide in the house. Forever. You will not be able to be with God <clears throat> for eternity with your sin. If you want to be with God for eternity, you gotta, you got to be saved from your sin. And if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. You will be able to be in the house with the Son. He came to share his freedom with us, his freedom from sin. <clears throat> the next uh, line here says, And recovery of sight to the blind. I think uh, most of us also don't recognize the fact that we have a blindness. I, I used to work in the field of cleaning. I would tell people I was a world expert in cleaning, and maybe I still am, but that's no longer my job. I changed to a job where I work for a company that makes uh, light emitting diodes, and so now I'm going to be a light expert, <laughs> hopefully. And uh, sight is an interesting thing because you don't just need your eyes to see. You need something else. And they're all around us. We can't see them, but without them, we can see nothing else. We, physicists will call them photons. Photons. There's light. There's, there's light particles. There's something that, that comes from the sun or from the light bulbs, 
and it bounces off surfaces and it comes to your eyes and your eyes sense it. And that's what allows you to see. Uh, when it says Christ came to give sight to the blind or recovery of sight to the blind, there's two aspects to it. There's having eyes that work, but it's also having the light to see with. And uh, since we're in Second Corinthians any, anyways, in a Sunday school class, so this is a dig to anyone who's not there. Um, I'm giving you lots of verses from that book, an extra reason to go digging into it. It says in Second Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When I was a new believer, or maybe just before I was a believer, I remember being in Rick's uh, living room, and uh, as I was at least becoming interested in the things of God, I asked him, why did God create us? And uh, Rick answered, said, well, God created us to know him. The only purpose you exist is because God wants you to know Him. And what Christ is doing here is giving you the purpose for living. When it says, as I read, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. He came to make God known for us. Without the Lord Jesus, we couldn't know God. God commanded the light to shine in the first day of creation so we could see the world that he created. And it is through the Lord Jesus that the light of God shines into our heart that we can actually come to know what God is like. Jesus was offering the people of Nazareth to share God with them, to make God revealed to them so they can see God so that the very purpose for their existence could be fulfilled. <clears throat> the next line here. It says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I imagine in the Jewish mind, well, those who are oppressed, yeah, that's us. It's the Romans that are oppressing us. <laughs> now, that verse wouldn't work for the rest of us because the Romans are not here oppressing us anymore. But Jesus was thinking of rulers beyond the Romans that were oppressing them. The Bible calls them the rulers of the darkness of this world. It's talking about Satan and the demons who are the invisible rulers of this world. And he tells us about them in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. He became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So it talks here about Christ coming into this world as a man and dying as a man to deliver us from the power of the devil, which was the power of death, because we were under bondage to the devil. And to deliver us from the devil, he had to deliver us from this fear of death that we were under. Uh, there's another verse that comes to my mind in John John 10, 10, the thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus is contrasting himself here with the devil. And he calls the devil the thief 
who comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan has no good goal for you in ruling this world. Okay, he came to steal and to kill and to destroy. And yet Jesus is the good shepherd and he said, I have come that they may have life and that they have it more abundantly. That's what Christ came to offer the people in Nazareth. There's another verse that comes to my mind. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a world that has a lot of troubles and weights upon us. Uh, Sharon and me have experienced some of them lately, as many of you know. And uh, one day when Sharon talked with her mom on the phone and was talking about this, her mom said, it's okay if you cry, it's okay if you cry. And, uh, you know, Sharon and I were kind of surprised that that was how she felt we should respond to the situation. But it made us realize that the Lord is holding up the weight. Yes, we live in a world that has a lot of tribulation, but Christ is calling us to join his yoke. And he is the one who bears the weight of the yoke, not us. And so we enjoy freedom or liberty from the bondage that is in this world. The last verse here. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What does Jesus mean when he says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord? There's a verse that comes to my mind. Of course, also in 2 Corinthians. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Uh, Many of you might know what the word amnesty means. Amnesty, uh, I think I had it written down here as a definition to make sure I get it right. Amnesty is a general pardon for offenses, especially political offenses against a government, often granted before any trial or conviction. It is an opportunity for people to come forward and confess the wrongs they have done without experiencing the full consequences for their deeds. And I have an example for you that's very applicable. Right now, there is an amnesty in California. Maybe you haven't heard of it. Maybe some of you have. The Franchise Tax Board officially launched a tax amnesty on August 1st, 2011. California taxpayers who need to report additional income from foreign accounts or who have participated in abusive tax avoidance transactions have an opportunity to pay their taxes and interest in return for a waiver of most penalties. The Franchise Tax Board has posted forms for taxpayers to use in requesting amnesty and issued a news release announcing the start of the amnesty. California's tax amnesty runs from August 1st through October 31st, 2011. That's tomorrow. So for those of you who didn't quite understand what this said, This is an opportunity for you if you've been cheating on your taxes, particularly by hiding some of the money that you've been making. And uh, the government's been getting more clever in finding people who do that because more things are done electronically these days and uh, whatever search engines can filter into foreign bank accounts, etc., they can probably find you now. But they don't really want to go after you. They much rather you just come and bring the money. And so they, they issued an amnesty. And they said, if you come forth, and disclose all this money you've been hiding and pay taxes and pay interest, 
we're not going to, we're going to waive most penalties. <laughs> that's what they're promising here, okay? But it's an amnesty. In a sense, that's what Jesus was talking about. Um, let's go ahead and actually turn to that passage in 2 Corinthians. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to back out into chapter 5 to see what he's talking about in this acceptable time. Go back out to chapter 5 and verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is, that God was in Christ re- reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So there it is. God is not in, there's a period of time when God is allowing you to come, confess your sins to him. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I am a sinner. I've come you to repent of my sins and turn back to God and from now on live the life you want me to live. And God says, all the sins you have done are forgiven. Forgiven. For each of your sin, you deserve to pay the penalty of death and eternity in the lake of fire. God will say, forgiven. It's all forgiven. That's the offer of the gospel that God has for you. But there's a certain period of time where this amnesty is available. That's why he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now, there is an opportunity to come and claim God's amnesty for your sins. Now, you may wonder, how can God do this? How can God just forgive my sins? Well, you can keep going in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God can offer you this amnesty because all your sins have been paid in Christ on the cross. God is not unjust or unholy in dealing with your sins. They've all been paid for. It's like California being able to Waive all your tax violations because somebody else has now paid the penalty in your place. Or Christ has paid. So he can come and offer the people of Nazareth forgiveness of sin based on the fact he himself was going to pay for their sins. I don't know about you, but uh, I agree with the statement in the scriptures as we go back to chapter 4 in Luke where it says, So all bore witness to him and marvel at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. These were gracious words. Jesus was, was uh, offering them God's riches at his expense. That's the definition Bill liked using for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense he was offering to them. Of course, as we see, things go from good to bad here. First, we see them saying in verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? And you might take it different, differently in different ways. What do they mean by saying, is this not Joseph's son? Well, we'll remove any doubt from your mind by looking at the passage in Mark chapter 6. It's not 
a good thing that they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? It's not a good thing. Mark 6 and chapter 1. Sorry, Mark 6 and verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And uh, it may seem like a hard thing to understand. Why does it bother them that Jesus grew in their midst? But uh, I think we could understand as people, the issue here is really that of pride. Uh, we, as, as you find when you go to most places, people try to set up some sort of a hierarchy. They kind of try to find out, well, who's important, who's really good in soccer, you know, who's not so good in soccer. I know here in the U.S. they don't care about soccer so much. But, you know, maybe uh, baseball or other sports, they start setting up a hierarchy, you know, who's the cool people, who are the not so cool people. And they had this structure in Nazareth. And uh, Jesus was probably at the very bottom. Why? Because he wasn't going to have any part of it. As people were pushing themselves forward, as people were trying to uh, move forward in the social ladder, Jesus wasn't interested. He was trying to find the bottom because that's why he came. He came to be the servant of servants. And uh, for Jesus to come and all of a sudden be this great person who has such wonderful messages from God and such miracles behind him was offensive. It basically meant... Everybody else had to take a step down in the social ladder because Jesus was moving up. Now, Jesus wasn't seeking it for himself, but that's the mindset of the people. The mindset of the people was how it was affected them socially because they were self-seeking, not like Jesus. Um, there was a, a verse about this. I was, I was looking for a verse for this. Of course, I could find something in Second Corinthians. It says, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's the way people are. They compare themselves with each other, trying to seek their higher ground. And and that's, of course, not the way God is. That's not the way God is. Um, Pride. I had some things to say about pride. First of all, pride is called the sin of the devil. Uh, If you remember, Rick talked about it, I think, last time, about the rebellions of the rebel against God. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to displace God off his throne. He was seeking to exalt himself above everybody else. And, uh, of course, the devil then led Adam and Eve in doing the same thing. If you remember, he comes and he questions them in the garden about what they can do (coughs) or what God told them not to do. And he suggests to them, look, God doesn't want the best for you. He knows that when you eat of that tree, you will become like God's yourself. And you can almost see in that grasp of Adam and Eve for that forbidden fruit, the grasp of Satan after the throne of God. And that's the same sin that exists in the hearts of people today. Who's on the throne of your heart today? For most people, it's them. They're sitting on the throne of their heart. There's no room for God. As God, Christ comes and tries to displace them off the throne of their heart, they push him away. And that's what was happening here at Nazareth. <clears throat> Pride, it is the most damning sin. Why is it the most damning sin? It's not 
necessarily the most offensive sin, but it is the sin that keeps us out of the reach of God. If you think about who Christ was reaching to in the verses that we were reading, well, he was reaching to the poor. He was reaching to the brokenhearted. He was reaching to the captives. He was reaching for the blind, for the oppressed, for those who were in debt to God. If you refuse to see yourself in that category, God has nothing for you. He's reaching out for people who realize they have a need. And the people in Nazareth, in their pride, were not conscious of their need for him. Which we'll see, he'll try to wake that up in them. The last thing I had to say about pride, um, which is related, perhaps, to the thought of, of it being the most uh, damning, damning sin. It's a verse that actually... Uh, Dave quoted for us, if I can just find it here. Right, Dave quoted us for us this morning in the breaking of bread. He said, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. It says here that God dwells with the humble. Why? Well, that's the only people he can live with because that's the way he is at. That's the way he is like. Uh, Amos says this, can two walk together except they are agreed? And the answer is they can't. How do we know that, that God is this way? Well, right here next to the Corinthians, who are to the people from Nazareth, Corinthians had the same issue, you know, vying for supremacy, for 30 years in their midst, God lived as a man, as a carpenter. And you know what? He was perfectly satisfied and happy as a carpenter. Why? Because he has no pride. Pride is sin, and he has none of it. God is not bothered by pride. He doesn't have any pride. He was perfectly happy for 30 years to live in his father's will as a nobody in Nazareth. And here you have mankind vying for an inch above the other person. And when Christ somehow suggests that he's on top, they won't let him move that way. And so they completely reject him. And so for you to live with God, you, you can't have pride. Pride is a sin like all other sins that must be repented of in order for us to be able to come into fellowship with him. <clears throat> so enough about pride. Let's look at Jesus' response to them back in Luke chapter 4. It says, And Jesus says to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard down in Capernaum, do also in your own country. So Jesus knows what they want. What is it that they want? They want a miracle. They're saying, Prove it. Okay, you're claiming to be the Messiah. Well, now prove it. Whatever we've heard of you doing in Capernaum, do here in front of us so we can see it, and then we'll believe in you. Well, the truth is there's, there's unbelief. They're talking in unbelief. They're refusing to believe what he's saying about himself, and so they're asking him to prove it. And um, Jesus responds to them in two ways. First of all, he is warning them about this. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Again, Jesus knew that of all people, these would struggle the most with believing in him. And he loves them, and he still wants to save them in spite of it. And so he's warning them, look, I, you know, 
people don't believe in prophets that come out of their midst. You guys are in a very dangerous territory because I came from your midst. And I'm telling you, I'm a prophet from God, and I'm telling you that people don't generally accept prophets that come out of their midst. So you really need to pay attention. Okay, he's trying to get your attention. And then he gives them a Bible lesson, which is, makes sense. They're in a synagogue. They came. They wanted to hear about God. He has a lesson for the day. And we'll find out. Unfortunately, it's not the lesson that they like. But he says, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Tzarfat in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. What's the lesson? They want a miracle. Right? He goes in the Bible back to really the last accounts of if you would widespread miracles. You could probably find a dozen or so miracles that Elijah and Elisha did. And that is one of the big periods of miracles. If you go back in the Bible, people always want to see miracles. There were only three periods in the history of the world where miracles were frequent in any ways. One was in Moses when he delivered Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the next one was Elijah and Elisha. And the final one was Jesus and the, the apostles. They did a lot of miracles. That's the only times you find, well, they haven't seen Jesus and the apostles yet or they've just heard about them. He goes to the previous incident with Elijah and Elisha. And he says, look, not everybody got a miracle. And uh, it's more than that because it's actually God's people were not getting miracles at the time. They were the Israelites. And, but they were in apostasy against God. Instead of following the true God, they were worshiping Baal. And because of that, Elijah announced a, a, a drought and a famine on the land. So for three and a half years, they had no rain. And there was great need in the people of the land. But there was something missing. There was no faith. And because of it, God sends Elijah out of Israel to a woman that will believe what he says, and he miraculously provides for that woman through Elijah. And then there were many, there were many lepers in the land at the time of Elijah. None of them was healed. Only Naaman was, who was a general Syrian, often warring against Israel and taking Israeli captives. He captures an Israeli young girl and who apparently had great faith. And uh, she, when she saw him and his uh, leprosy, she told his wife that, hey, you know, I wish you know, the prophet from Israel was here because he could heal Naaman from his leprosy. I don't know where this woman got that because in history that has not yet happened. And yet she has this faith and... Uh, Naaman's wife believes, and she tells Naaman, and Naaman believes, and he goes all the way from Syria to Israel, and of course he doesn't know what the prophet is, so he goes to the capital city, to the king, and he says, I've come to be healed of my leprosy. And, he, and uh, Ahab, Ahab about, has about uh, this much faith in him, and so he thinks the guy came to start war. And he gets upset, well, God tells Elisha about it, so Elisha sends to him and he says, send him to me that he may know that there is a God in Israel. So here was another Gentile who believed, but God's people wouldn't believe. So, so not just is God selective in miracles, not everybody gets it. People get it that believe. And in the days of Elijah and Elisha, there was no faith in Israel. And so it was the Gentiles that were getting it. Now, you might start understanding why the people were so angry hearing it, because Jesus was comparing them 
to the people in Elijah and Elisha's day, people that had no faith. He has come. He has read to them the word of God. They have heard reports about him. They had lots of reason to believe. The only reason they're rejecting him is their pride. And he is giving them a stern warning here. Look, you are like these people with no faith. And Jesus says this somewhere else. He says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he's talking there about his resurrection that will happen later. So, so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you a sign, effectively, because you guys have no faith. You're rejecting God. Um, <clears throat> we'll see. He gives them a sign. But again, not the one that they were looking for. So, uh, perhaps as we, as, as, uh, as we expect, we see a negative reaction from the Corinthians. It reminds me of a, of, um, something that Michael said, which I didn't know about at the time, when he, when he shared his testimony, uh, with other people and I was listening to him. Uh, I, God used me to share with Michael, uh, before he got saved. And, uh, at some point, Michael, I think, asked me whether he was a sinner bad enough to go to hell. And, you know, I didn't like saying it, but I said yes. And I didn't know it at the time, but uh, Michael told me later he really wanted to punch me when I said that. <laughs> and uh, that's the reaction we see here in Nazareth. Okay, they're furious at Jesus suggesting that they're sinners under the wrath of God. And that's why they're, they're uh, trying to lynch him, uh, taking him to the top of the hill, wanting to throw him off the top of the hill. And yet, Jesus knew this would be the reaction that they would have. And uh, you have to admire the love he has for these people, that he's going with them this distance to try to show them their need for him. And uh, it's interesting, if you notice, he could have walked away out of the synagogue as they tried to grab him before they pushed him up the hill and were ready to cast him down. He could have walked out any time. He waited till the very end, till it was proven what they were going to see. They saw the murder that they were going to do in their own eyes before he left, leaving them with nothing in their hands but their realization of what it was that they were about to do. Uh, again, trying to convict them of their sin. Jesus had a discussion like that with uh, the Jews at another point. And he said this, You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth from God? I haven't done anything... All he gave them is a Bible lesson from the Old Testament, the book they came to hear. How can you complain? How can you try to murder a person like that? Well, you can because that's what we're like inside. And I'm not saying it to suggest that the people in Nazareth were any worse than the rest of us. They were just like the rest of us. But their sin was awakened. Jesus provoked them, if you would. He provoked their sinful nature by the things that he said and he did. He showed them what they were like. And he showed us what we're like, in a sense, in them. The rejection of Christ in the Gospels and here is really a picture of mankind. The only thing that was different between them and us is the fact that Jesus grew up in their midst. If Jesus grew up in our midst, we may have been just like them in their reaction to Jesus here. In fact, it says the whole town was. So this is a cross-section of humanity reacting to the Son of God. Uh, Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. Without a cause. The hatred of Jesus is a demonstration of the sinfulness of man. Okay, well, we said we'll, uh, there was a miracle, and of course, the miracle was the miracle at the very end that Christ just walked out of them. They came, they were ready to throw him off. And at that point, Jesus, if you would, parts the Red Sea, but except the Red Sea is made out of human bodies, 
and he's just walking, walking out of there. Uh, what, what was the lesson in there? Well, I think number one, it was a lesson that he really was who he said he was. It was a demonstration to them of power. They wanted a miracle, they got a miracle. Um, another lesson in it is that they cannot overthrow Christ. Uh, if you would turn to Psalm number two, because this is again not just the reaction of the people in Nazareth, that is the reaction of the world to Christ. There's a verse that says, we will not have this man to rule over us. We don't want him to displace us on the throne of our own life. We want to be the one on the throne. And this psalm is a response to that human sentiment. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You do not displace him. He is the king. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The amazing thing to me in all this isn't the fact that Jesus walked away. It's the fact that one day Jesus was not going to walk away. One day Jesus was going to stretch, stretch out his hands and people were going to nail it to a cross. And they were going to lift him up to die of deprivation. And yet, why is it that Jesus allowed him to do that? He said, no man takes my life from me, but I have laid it down of myself. I have power to take it up and power to lay it down. He demonstrated his power to lay it down. It was the power of his love. He loved his enemies so much that he was willing to let them do the very worst to him so that he could do his very best for them. And that includes you. And that includes me. Let's praise him. Lord, we thank you for this incredible love that you would seek your people so much. We know, Lord, it's not just these people that you sought so much. It is us that you sought just as much. We thank you so much that you came to give us your very uh, best, your all, that we might indeed uh, be rich in you and have all the blessings that you've come to give to us. We pray here, Lord, if there's anyone here that is still holding on to their pride, 
wants to keep themselves on the throne and, so to speak, is keeping away Christ and all the blessing that Christ wants to bring into their lives. We pray that you help them put that pride away and receive him. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.